This is the New Song Church podcast. You're listening to a service from our church in Oklahoma City. Wherever you're at today, we hope this helps you to better know God and to practice the way of Jesus. Now here's the message. We are those who dwell in the house of the Lord. Can I get an amen? Amen. Welcome. Good morning. Hey, thanks for being here. Thanks for watching online. Thanks to those who are watching in overflow. We are in overflow today. And I just want to encourage you. I've been there before overflow where you're like, dang it. Um, But I want you to know God's where you're at. And um, that if um, if you are intentional, I'm thinking about the woman with the issue of blood. If you're intentional today and not satisfied just to brush up against him, that he's just as much with you there as he is with us in here. Um, But I do want to encourage those of you in here, if you can, um, while we are figuring out, trying to be led by the Spirit on what to do next as we grow, um, would you consider helping us out and going to Saturday at four o'clock? We have lots of space left in that service and it is awesome. So Saturday at four or nine, we're pretty full in nine too, but we really need some relief in this service. So help us out, all right? All right. Great. All right. <laughs> um, we are, we're digging into a new series today. Get out your Being Transformed journals if you have them. And if you have one, uh, you know you're almost to the end of yours. It's hanging on by a thread. We've got new journals out there that start in May. They are purple. They are cute. And they are uh, packed with ways to help you daily abide in God's Word, the disciplines of prayer, kingdom, community. They've been such a helpful resource for our church. They're free. So pick one up as you leave today. All right, 11.40 p.m. on Sunday, April 14th, 1912, 111 years ago Friday, ironically, the RMS Titanic set out on her maiden journey. And just four days into that maiden journey, she hit an iceberg. At 12.30 a.m., half-full lifeboats begin to be lowered into the water. At 2.10 a.m., the ship's lights go out. At 2.17, the Titanic breaks in two. At 2.19 a.m., the bow begins to sink. And at 2.24 a.m., the Titanic has reached the bottom of the ocean. That ship went down in less time than it takes for us to watch Jack Dawson go from being the king of the world to the frozen chump in the icy water while Rose DeWitt Bucator takes up all of the space on the raft. In less than three hours, the destruction was swift. Three hours from the time it hit the iceberg till the time it was in the bottom of the ocean. The destruction was swift, but the formation of the iceberg that brought about the destruction was not so swift. That iceberg had been collecting snowflakes for thousands of years probably somewhere in Greenland. And after that glacier that got so heavy that it broke off to form that iceberg, it took that iceberg 17,520 hours, traveling eight miles every day, eight miles every day for two years to float to that place in the Atlantic where it crossed paths with the Titanic and went down as the most, most notorious iceberg in all of history. The destruction was swift, but the cause of the destruction was not so swift. It was little by little. It was snowflake by snowflake. It was hours of travel. It was years of accumulation. No one aware at how much devastation would be caused by what was lurking beneath the surface. If only those in the watchtower had seen it earlier, 
and not 30 seconds before they had no option but to crash into it. Or if only there had been some type of technology that they could detect what was under the surface of the water. Because truthfully, it wasn't the part of the iceberg that they could see that ripped that ship to shreds. It was the part that they could not see. The part lurking beneath the surface. Typically only one-tenth of an iceberg's total mass is visible above the water. It's estimated that the height of the Titanic iceberg was about above the surface, 50 to 100 feet of that thing was visible to the naked eye. But the part that was not visible to the eye, it was half a mile deep, 2,640 feet of it hidden beneath the surface. What lies beneath? We're kicking off an eight-week series today devoted to discovering what lies beneath the surface of our lives that 90-ish percent that if remain unseen, that if continues to lurk unseen, that if left untouched by the transforming love of Jesus could result in swift destruction. The goal of the series is to help us detect places where we're emotionally immature so that we can have lasting transformation in our relationship with God in our relationship with ourselves, in our relationship with others. Lasting transformation is what we're after here. And if right now you're thinking, great, eight weeks of discovering just how emotionally immature I am. (laughs) Sounds like a blast. I get it. I know it can be hard from personal experience when somebody's touching on those places that are underdeveloped, those places of immaturity. Like think back to grade school. Um, One of the sickest burns is when someone calls you a baby and points out the fact, like points out some immaturity, like you're such a baby. Why don't you go get your pacifier? Go home. Like that cuts deep, right? But I promise that this, this won't be like that. There will be no sick burns, only refining fire, okay? We spent the first three months of the year going through this material with our staff. This is the fourth time I've been through this material. And let me just say that if it takes a little bit of getting uncomfortable, a little bit of exposing some areas where I need growth to see the transformation like I have seen every time I go through this material, then I'll welcome it anytime. So yes, prepare to be messed with. Yes, prepare to have deep conversations with your people. Yes, prepare to be called up, church and prepare to be called back in order to move forward. Prepare whether you're 14 or whether you're 84, prepare to say yes to the lasting transformation that I believe deep in my bones that the Lord wants to do over the next eight weeks. And also be prepared for the enemy, the accuser of the brethren to come at you with some shame, to to try to twist the words in these messages over the next couple of weeks to get you to feel heavy, to get you to feel shame. I heard this acronym for shame the other day that they actually use in AA meetings and it's pretty solid. I've come back to it several times over the last couple weeks in different conversations with people that are dealing with shame. They put it like this, shame is should have already mastered everything. See the acronym? Should have already mastered everything. The enemy is gonna come at you and say, you should have already mastered being an emotionally human, um, emotionally mature human. 
You should have already mastered how to have healthy communication in your marriage. Come on, you've been married for 30 years. You should have already mastered this. You should have already mastered how to have healthy conflict. You should have already mastered practicing the way of Jesus. You should have already mastered spiritual maturity. You should have already mastered this or mastered that. That is the voice of the enemy. Scripture says that we are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. It's little by little, and his mercies are new every morning. His mercy is there. And on another good note, he's already mastered everything for us. Somebody just like, take a moment, a big sigh of relief. Like, take a sigh of relief, breathe a sigh of relief. The pressure's off. He's already mastered everything for us. Now we just have to respond to his call to come to him to respond to what the Holy Spirit is saying and to allow the Holy Spirit to help us grow up in Christ. So at any time you're sensing that shame, that voice of the enemy, know that that's his voice. And what do you do with that? You resist him. Because scripture says when we resist the enemy, he flees from us. So resist that. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, come, come Holy Spirit. The very breath of God, the very life of God, of God, would you come? Would you breathe on us? Would you shift what needs to be shifted? Would you stir what needs to be stirred? Would you hover over our lives? Or would you bring transformation? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so today's message is a setup for the series. You will not leave with all of the answers. You'll probably leave with more questions than answers, and I'm totally okay with that. I want you to wrestle with these messages. Um, Don't expect like a checklist. This is not a checklist series. Yes, we're going to give you tools and things like that to help you grow, but I don't want you to to look at this like if I just do this, 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 and this, then over the next eight weeks, by the time I get done with it, I'm going to be an emotionally mature person. This is not a checklist series. This is a Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me and how am I going to respond to that series? So just so we're clear, We say it at New Song all the time, clear is kind. I'm trying to be kind here, trying to manage expectations. We're gonna talk more about that in week seven, but right now, this is just a setup, a setup for the series, okay? I want to uncover what being an emotionally healthy person actually means and how our spiritual maturity, our growing up in Christ is dependent on our emotional health and vice versa. So if you're taking notes, Get out your journals, get out your pens, get out your app. All of this is in the New Song app. Um, We're gonna start with a working definition of emotional health. Emotional health is our ability to be self-aware and to love others well, to love well. Our ability to be self-aware and love well. So an emotionally healthy person is aware of what is going on inside of them and they're aware of, of what's going on around them. They are aware of how they are feeling, of their emotions, but they're also aware of the emotions of the people that are in the room with them, that are closest to them. They're aware of those areas of hurt from their past that try to creep up and affect and sabotage the relationships that they're currently in. They're familiar with their strengths. They're very familiar with their weaknesses. They know how to respect others. They know how to maintain close and meaningful relationships. Now, The truth is you don't have to be a follower of Jesus to be an emotionally healthy person. 
I would venture to say that there are probably some people who aren't followers of Jesus, maybe you know them in the workplace, that are actually more emotionally mature than evangelical Christians. Um, they know how to, um, to, 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 uh, to, to talk about their emotions. They have no problem meeting with a life coach once a month and bearing their soul. They know how to resolve conflict at work in a really healthy way that you wish you could resolve conflict like that in your small group or in your home. You've seen them do that. Um, they, they display like an active compassion for the hurting world. Like you see them out there noticing the hurts of the world and then going out there and doing something about it. They know how to manage their emotions, recognize what they're feeling. Um, you, you've probably seen this. Like, oh wow, they're really emotionally healthy. They are so self-aware and they love others well. That's good, but that's not the goal of this series. The goal of this series is not to help you be just a more decent, well-rounded human being. The goal of this series is um, not to help you just have a better quality of life. Okay, the goal of this series is to help you be more aware of God's love and teaching you how to respond to his love so that you can grow up in spiritual maturity. Okay, so emotional health is about being self-aware and about being, uh, uh, about being others aware and loving others well. But what is spiritual maturity? Because these two are tied together. Okay, it's time for another working definition. And this definition is going to be crucial over the next eight weeks. So please write it down, screenshot it, whatever you have to do. Um, but before we get to that, I want you to just think with me for a second. When you think of the word spiritual maturity, who do you think of? Somebody that is spiritual mature, what crosses your mind? Is it somebody that knows the Bible really, really well? Is it somebody who um, can pray out loud like, on a second's notice and they just like, whoa, blow everybody's hair back. Like that was an amazing prayer. Is it somebody who not only ties, but they also give towards missions? Like these are all good things, but these are not the things that I want you to have in mind when we talk about spiritual maturity. Here is what I want you to think of. Dallas Willard helping us out with our definition. Spiritual maturity is seen in the disciple. How many know we're all called to be disciples of Jesus? Spiritual maturity is seen in the disciple who effortlessly does what Jesus would do in his or her place. Effortlessly. Somebody say effortlessly. I love that word. Meaning that you are so connected to the vine. Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branch. That you are so connected to the vine that you are abiding in Christ, as if you really believed what he said, that apart from him, you can do nothing. That you are so surrendered to Christ's love that it is Christ's love and it is his joy and patience and it's his peace and it's his gentleness and it's his kindness and it's Christ's self-control that are flowing naturally, effortlessly from you. Now, based on that definition, of spiritual maturity, being a disciple who effortlessly does what Jesus would do in your place more often than not. How many of you have some maturing to do? Everybody in this room, we all have some maturing to do. Now, the heartbeat of the series, the goal of the series is to help you to see that being emotionally healthy, somebody who is self-aware and loves others well, is directly tied to your spiritual maturity. This effortlessly doing what Jesus would do in your place. 
Pete Scazzaro, who literally wrote the book on this. It's called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. We call it EHS around here. He says it like this. It's impossible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. In other words, in order to be a disciple who effortlessly does what Jesus would do in our place, we can't remain emotionally immature. We can't settle for being unaware of what lies beneath. We can't settle for being unaware of what lies beneath. We can't settle for just floating through this world like a big iceberg, accumulating all of these hurts and rejections and pain and shame and waking up and going to work and streaming and scrolling and eating and then repeating and doing the same thing the next day, filling every moment of our life with everything except silence. Filling every moment of our life with everything except stillness before the Lord. Filling every moment of our lives with everything except search me, oh God, what's going on in my life, except slowing down our lives in order to be aware of how we're really doing so that we can be transformed into the kind of people who love others well as effortlessly as Jesus did. I want you to go back to the iceberg illustration for a moment. We talked about how typically only one-tenth of an iceberg is visible above the surface of the water. Okay, have you ever known somebody who on the outside, that 10% that you can see, usually here at church, the 10% that you can see above the surface, they appear to be a super mature follower of Jesus Christ. Like they're doing all the Jesus things and they're doing them so effortlessly. Like they're at church every weekend and they serve and kids every weekend and they attend um, all the equip classes and they're there for the discipleship courses and they're going on every mission trip and they are, um, they're, they're getting wrecked week in and week out during worship, just, just falling face down and crying and all the things. And they're, they're bringing the lost to church and they're, they're, they're wanting to mentor everyone and they're doing their being transformed journal every day. And they're posting about what they're getting in their being transformed journal every day. And you see it on their story and you're like, man, that's better than what I got like they appear to be having authentic spiritual encounters with the Lord frequently but then you get to know them a little bit better and you discover that their relational life is fractured their relational life is a mess that their interior world is disordered that maybe they're doing all the Jesus things effortlessly here but the way that they treat their spouse the way that they're raising their kids, the way that they relate to others, that that reflects more of the home that they were raised in than it does the new family of God that they've been adopted into. That, that the way that they parent their kids, that reflects more, more, more of their, their upbringing, their culture, than it does the Sermon on the Mount. And while this person may have been a Christian for 22 years, and they've gotten really good over the last 22 years doing all that external Christian stuff, instead of being a 22-year-old Christian, it's more like she's been a one-year-old Christian 22 times, doing the same things over and over, never really maturing emotionally, never letting the Lord tend to what lies beneath the surface. This is common in the church world. We've seen it over and over and over again. When when someone's spirituality, their prayer room attendance, their Bible reading, their loyal involvement in the church has had little 
to no impact on their marriage, on their families, relationally across the board. Maybe you saw that growing up at church, like everyone at your home church thought that your dad was just awesome. He was like the man of God, right? The bee's knees. But then you, Monday through Saturday, saw a different side of your dad. You saw his finger pointed in your face all the time, demanding perfection, no love, no grace, no mercy for you. But then on Sunday, he's the hand raising, he's the handshaking, he's the elder at the front of the church laying hands on everybody at the altar. But that wasn't translating into your home. Maybe you've been in a group with someone who outwardly appears to have it all together. Like they know the word. And they're those people that are offering words in due season, just words at the right time, like honey, and it's so good, and everybody loves them. And they're externally gracious and kind and patient, patient but come to find out after a swift destruction of their marriage, which you, by the way, had no idea was struggling because they never let on. You find out that all that Bible study, all that discipleship, all that spirituality had not touched on these deep internal wounds and, and had not made a difference in these sin patterns, sin cycles in their life. And behind closed doors, that 90-ish percent, the little by littles, the trials, one trial, one setback, one conflict, one snowflake at a time, those wounds begin to emerge those sin patterns begin to show until what lies beneath can no longer be hidden and their thing crashes into another thing and the destruction is swift and the carnage is great and the survivors are forever marked by what happened. Maybe you recognize yourself in some of these descriptions. You, you pretend all is well because that feels safer than being honest, than being vulnerable. Maybe you hide behind your spiritual disciplines like prayer and fasting and doing your journal, spiritual experiences like here at church or midweek prayer. Maybe the way that you treat your kids reflects more of the way you were raised than it does the kingdom of God. Maybe you're realizing that all this biblical knowledge that you've accumulated, that leadership position that you have attained, your experience, your gifts, your skills, that all of that has not changed the fact that there are huge portions of your life that have remained untouched by the love of Jesus. Not because he is not willing, but because you are afraid to bring this stuff back up to the surface. You don't wanna go there, it's too painful, it's too hurtful. Or maybe you're not afraid, maybe you're deceived. And maybe you think that, that that thing that was spoken over you when you were a child, that broken relationship, that shame, whatever it is, that that could not possibly have anything to do with your life right now and the way you relate to God or to others or to yourself, but it does. Unless what lies beneath, unless what lies beneath is exposed and transformed by the love of Jesus, we will remain emotional infants. Sure, the 10% looks pretty transformed, but that 90%, that interior life, unless we surrender it to Christ, it will remain deformed. And here's what I want you to understand, that deeply transformed people Deeply transformed people have a powerful and a lasting impact on the world. But on the other side, on the flip side, deeply deformed people have a powerful and lasting impact on the world. 
right? Like Dallas Willard. I love Dallas Willard. If we were ever to have another son, surprise, something like that happened, right? I would name him Dallas. After Dallas Willard, Josh loves the Dallas Cowboys. It's perfect, right? (laughs) Dallas Willard, a deeply transformed person, has had a profound and powerful impact in my life and countless others. He's helped me to understand aspects of God's kingdom like nobody else. But also, people like men like David Koresh, or men like Timothy McVeigh, the Oklahoma City bomber. These men have had powerful and lasting impact on the world. Different kind of impact, but an impact nonetheless. Deeply transformed or deeply deformed, you are going to leave an impact. You're going to have a powerful and lasting impact in this world. And if you want it to be a good impact and not a ship sinking impact, you need to be aware of what lies beneath the surface of your life so that you can bring it to Jesus so he can redeem it, he can restore it, and he can transform it all for his glory. We know this, hurt people hurt people. Wounded people wound people. Rejected people reject people. But people who are transformed by the love of God transform the world. The truth is we cannot help. We can't help but to impact the world in some way. Why is that? Genesis 1:27. So God created man in his own image. In his image, he created them. Male and female, he created them. We were created in the image of the most impactful of all. He can't not impact. And we're created in his image. Think about it. Jesus is either the cornerstone, the foundational stone of your life, or he is the stumbling stone. But either way, he is making an impact. We are made in his image. What kind of impact will you leave on your children, on your grandchildren, on your employees, on your coworkers, on your school? If you want to leave a godly impact, then you have to pay attention to your emotional health. So we're made in God's image, imago Dei, right? So it's important to understand that this image, the image of God, which is our image, that it includes five dimensions. Somebody say five. Five dimensions, okay? There's physical, there's the spiritual dimension, there's the intellectual, the social, and the emotional. Now, for many years in the Western church, we have um, put a lot of emphasis on all of these dimensions except for the emotional one. Think about it. The spiritual, it's we need to be more aware of your presence and it's pray more. Physical, to get your flesh to stop acting up. You need to mortify the flesh, crucify your flesh. You need to fast more, offer your body as a living sacrifice. There's the intellectual. You gotta read more. You gotta study more. You gotta know God. Maybe someday we can be as smart as Pastor Tondrai, right? There's the social. We gotta find kingdom community. Don't do life alone. These are all good things to focus on, all good things to teach on. But the emotional dimension has been grossly overlooked. And anytime that we overlook who we are as men and women of God, like one-fifth of who we are made in God's image, that's going to result in destructive consequences. Emotional. The only teaching that I remember growing up in my church context about the emotions is feelings lie. Don't trust your feelings, which I find bizarre, seeing that the very first words out of resurrected Jesus' mouth to Mary Magdalene were this, woman, why are you weeping? 
Whom are you seeking? Jesus does not say to her, woman, stop feeling sad. He doesn't say to her, stop crying. He doesn't say, your feelings are lying to you, Mary. No, he says, why? Why are you weeping? It's as if Jesus knew how powerful it was when we acknowledge what we are feeling and examine why we are feeling that way. Mary was sad because her Lord was not where she thought he was going to be. She didn't know that he was somewhere better. She hadn't realized that yet. He was not in the tomb. He was waiting to reveal his resurrected self to her in the garden. Jesus acknowledged her sadness and he wanted Mary to acknowledge her sadness. Why? So that he could melt it all away with the warmth of his voice calling her name, Mary. Our emotions matter to Jesus, but due to the lack of teaching on emotions or the wrong teaching on emotions, we have a lot of emotionally underdeveloped, emotionally immature followers of Jesus out there slowly drifting toward collision. So today I wanna give you 10 symptoms. It's kind of like a checkup. 10 symptoms or indicators of someone who is emotionally unhealthy. And I, as we go through these, I want you to maybe like circle or star a couple that are most relevant in your life today. Not in your spouse's life. Not in your parent's life. Not in your sister's life. But in your life. Someone put your heart, hand over your heart, say, my life. My life. Okay, symptoms of emotional health. You guys here for this checkup? Yes. All right. You can go if you want. The doors, are, the doors are there, but I encourage you to stay. Okay, symptoms of emotional unhealth. Using God to run from God. Using God to run from God. What do I mean by this? This, this looks like maybe a person who hides behind reading one Christian book after another Christian book, one podcast after the next podcast. They're engaging in endless Christian re responsibilities outside of the home. Like, it's like, oh, look, it's a bird. No, it's a plane. No, it's super Christian. Look at her go. Look at her do all of the things for the Lord. Now, I, for one, spend hours. Like, I go from one Christian book after another. I go from one podcast to another. I'm consuming all day long. I love it. And I also love serving outside of my house and Christian activities. Is that wrong? No, unless we are doing those things as an attempt to escape from some pain. Like maybe you wanna be on the worship team every weekend, not so much because you just love the Lord and you wanna use your gifts, but it's a way for you to escape the pain of your marriage. Um, I've got some red flags for you to consider um, that maybe all the super Christian activity is not being spurred on by gratitude or by devotion, but by something else. Doing God's work to satisfy you not him. Doing things in his name that he never asked you to do. Demonstrating Christian behaviors so that significant people will see you demonstrating those Christian behaviors. And if they don't see you demonstrating or don't comment on those behaviors that you're demonstrating to impress them, you get your feelings hurt, you get offended. Using biblical truth to judge and devalue others, like just loading up your little arsenal to, to demonize, using God's word as a, as a weapon to weaponize. 
exaggerating your kingdom work, like, hey, look at all that God's doing over here, to low-key compete with somebody else's kingdom work, defensive about your failures, hiding behind God talk, like you had a really bad week and you walk in and it's like, how's it going? I'm blessed and highly favored. <laughs> Applying biblical truth selectively to avoid anything that would require making significant life changes. That's a symptom of emotional unhealth. Using God to run from God. Number two is ignoring anger, sadness, and fear, and other emotions like that. Okay, many Christians, we talked about this, have been taught to ignore emotions like anger and sadness and fear, and that these things are lying and that we need to avoid them and stuff them down. If we want to be good Christians, if we let on that we are dealing with any of these negative emotions, then people are gonna assume that we have little faith, that we don't trust God. Now, the truth is, hear me, I'm not saying this, because there are some, some Christians out there who follow their feelings in a really unbiblical and an unhealthy way. They let their feelings rule and reign and be the king of their heart. And that's not what I'm saying. Jesus rules and Jesus reigns and Jesus is the king of our heart. But in the, the, the context that I grew up in, it was more common for Christians to believe that they could not express those emotions rather than to be led by their emotions. But here's the problem with that. If we ignore sadness, if we ignore anger, if we ignore um, fear, then how can we listen to what God wants to say about those things. If we, we come to him and we act like we're okay, how can he speak to us? How can he bring transformation if we're not even willing to admit that it's there? Or we think like it's some sin to be dealing with these emotions. Pete Scazzaro says, to feel is to be human. To minimize or deny what we feel is a distortion of what it means to be image bearers of God. To the degree that we are unable to express our emotions. And let me just stop right here because I believe that there are people all over this room that have just been told you don't know how to express your emotions. You need to learn how to express your emotions. And you've just believed the lie that you, you'll never be able to do that and it doesn't matter so you're not even going to try. Listen to this. To the degree that we are unable to express our emotions, we remain impaired in our ability to love God others and ourselves well. It's like you've got one hand tied behind your back. This is a big deal. We're made in God's image. And God expressed emotion, anger in Psalm 711, sadness in Psalm 7840. We know Jesus wept. We know that he experienced compassion and pity for the multitude. In the garden of Gethsemane, he said out of his own mouth that he was overcome with sorrow. He wasn't like, nope, this isn't blood. It's fine. I'm good. No, I'm great. I'm blessed and highly favored. Like I'm doing fine. No, he said, guys, I'm overcome with sorrow. So where do we get this idea that we have to ignore what we're feeling when we see that our Jesus, that we're supposed to be being transformed into his image, was very honest that he was overcome to the point of grief. Number three, dying to the wrong things. There's people out there that think Luke 9.23, which is critical, which is crucial, which every Christian should have tattooed on their heart. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. A lot of Christians, they think that that means that the more miserable that you are, that the more that you suffer, that the more Jesus loves you. But that is simply not true. Jesus was not miserable. 
Life in his kingdom is not supposed to be miserable. Life in his kingdom is supposed to be the place where we're free to let good things run wild. Yes, we die to self. Yes, we die to selfishness. Yes, we die to our will, to our kingdom, to our trying to find meaning and purpose outside of Christ. We die to those things daily, but we're not called to die to the unique person that God has created each of us to be. And we're not called to die to the desires that he has placed in our heart, that he wants to nurture, that he wants us to enjoy. God enjoys when we're enjoying life. So if you've got this thing in your head where like you wanna be the most miserable of God's children, you're dying to the wrong things. Number four, denying the impact of the past on the present denying the impact of the past on the present. This was a big one for me that was circled and starred. Um, This is when we deny how our family of origin or important people or certain events from our past have shaped our present. I remember looking right at Josh one day at Hall's Pizza Kitchen and telling him so confidently that um, I I didn't think there was anything in my past that was playing into how I related to him or to other people, like, None of that, none of that matters. I, I'm free from anything that, no, nothing that happened in my past is impacting my present. And he looked back at me just as confidently as I looked at him and said, well, I think that you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and I was glad the check came because we got in the car. We didn't go get pie right away like we were planning on. We drove around, we circled around the Plaza District for about 45 minutes while we talked this out. Um, I was kind of uh, of the stance, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, the old has gone and the new is here. So my past doesn't matter anymore. Like how could what happened in my childhood possibly be affecting my marriage like 30 years later? That's poppycock. That was my official stance, but that was not the correct stance. Pastor Jackson's gonna talk about this more in week three, but for now, I'm just gonna leave you with this Pete Scazzaro quote. Jesus may be in your heart, but grandpa is in your bones. Number five, dividing life into secular and sacred compartments, compartmentalizing our lives. According to Gallup polls, one of the greatest scandals, and this is super, like, this is just sad. I hope this makes you heart sick. It should. Um, One of the greatest scandals of our day is that evangelical Christians are as likely to embrace lifestyles every bit as hedonistic, materialistic, self-centered, and sexually immoral as the world in general. God, that just breaks my heart. Why is this? It's because we live very compartmentalized lives. This is Sunday. This is my two hours with the Lord and then back to the minutia of everyday life. Greg Boyd says, I believe the most prevalent and tragic misunderstanding that afflicts contemporary Western Christianity is that we make a vow to submit our life to Christ. Our life. Not our Sunday morning but our life. I'm gonna love you with all of my heart, with all of my strength, with all of my soul, all of me for all of you. You're my all in all. That's what it means. I've decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. It's not two hours, it's my life. I vow my life is for you. We do that and then spend 99% of our time excluding him from our awareness. We make him Lord over our life in theory. It's not a theory. But we do not make him Lord over most of the moments that make up our life. 
The fact is, if we can't discern God's presence in our day-to-day lives, it's unlikely that we'll find him at a revival or on a Sunday morning. We may find a lot of excitement and great speakers and superb music and maybe even see signs and wonders, but unless a person learns to find God as much in the ordinary as in the exciting, the exciting will do nothing more than serve as a momentary distraction. I don't want this to be a momentary distraction for you. He didn't give his life for you to be a momentary distraction. He wants us to live and to move and to have our being in him. We got to stop segregating and compartmentalizing our lives. Number six, sign of emotional unhealth is doing for God instead of being with God. There's nothing wrong with doing for God. We preach that at New Song all the time. We're pursuing sacrificial mission. We don't want to give what cost us nothing. We don't want to give and serve just when it's convenient. We want to give out of a place of sacrifice because we see that modeled in King Jesus. Show up and serve, right? Like that's like a motto here at New Song. But work for God that is not nourished by a deep interior life with God will eventually be contaminated by other things such as ego and power and needing approval of and from others and buying into the wrong ideas of success and the mistaken belief that we can't fail. This is why pastors fall all of the time because they're so busy doing for the Lord, writing that book, commenting on every post or commenting on every comment or reading every comment that somebody posted on their video, whatever, trying to do this Hollywood caliber illustration to top the next Hollywood or the last Hollywood caliber illustration. You're so busy crafting that message, too busy doing for God, even if it's good things, going to the hospitals, visiting people, praying for people, all the things. You're too busy doing for God that you don't have time to be with God. Are you a human doing or a human being? We want to show up and serve, but we want to do that out of a place of overflow, not out of a place of performance. Number seven, spiritualizing away conflict. These are people who end up missing out on true peace. They get satisfied with false peace because they think that they're practicing the way of Jesus by smoothing over disagreements, by burying tension, by avoiding conflict. They think they're practicing the way of Jesus by never dealing with this stuff, but Jesus never settled for false peace by just sweeping things under the rug. Do you spiritualize away conflict? If so, that's a sign of emotional unhealth. Number eight is living without limits, biting off more than you can chew. Um, I think I fell prey to this early on as a church planter. Like, yeah, I I can meet every need of every person in this church and I can serve my family. I can do it all. I'm anointed for such a time as this, but alas, I have limits. I learned that I am not God and you are not God and I can't meet every need and I can't have coffee with every person in this church and I can't have my kids sign up for every activity at school and I can't be master chef every night of the week or any night of the week for that matter. <laughs> I can't. I can't show up to every serve Saturday. I can't be here all three weekends, weekend or all three services, weekend and week out. I can't. I know I have limits, and I've learned that, and it's been one of the most freeing things. We see that Jesus modeled this. He was fully God and fully human, and when he put on skin, he was limited by time and space, just as we are. 
And you gotta understand that. You gotta come to terms with that. You are limited by time and space. He had to rest, he had to stop, he had to eat, he had to drink, and he did not meet the need of every person that came across his path. Number nine, judging other people's spiritual journey. Why aren't they doing their journal every day? Why aren't they in a small group? Why don't they lift their hands during worship? Why don't they ever show up to midweek prayer? Judging others, people's spiritual journey. Finding yourselves occupied or bothered by the faults of those around you. Number 10, covering over brokenness, weakness, and failure. This is another big one for me. Circled on my paper, Pete Scazzaro writes, the pressure to present an image of ourselves as strong and spiritually together hovers over most of us. Last year, at the end of the year, I dealt with this, a string of weird injuries and illnesses, like back to back to back to back stuff. Like I just think I was getting better and then something else would hit me. And during that time, um, Josh, on two separate occasions, he used the word fragile to describe my health. And both times, I had this like visceral internal reaction to hearing that word spoken over me. Like it made me sick to my stomach. And I just kind of brush over that and move on with my day. But on the last day of 2022, I was in my secret place. I was practicing silence and stillness before the Lord. And I heard the Lord say in my heart, let's talk about why that word fragile repulses you so kind of like when he said to Mary, Mary, why are you weeping? I felt like he said, Sarah, what's going on here? Why does this word bother you so much? And I didn't want to. <laughs> to I just kind of be like, it's good, I'm fine. Um, but I decided to wade out into the deep there and uncover what was going on behind that visceral reaction. And as I did, I found that the Lord's love met me. And I began to just write it all out. I don't want to be thought of as fragile or sick or injured or weak or tired. Why? Partly because of pride. Like I'm a woman and I'm small. And so I need people to think that I'm strong. I want people, I want people to not look at me and be like, oh, she's weak. I want people to look at me and say, oh, look how strong she is. So there's pride. Um, also because I want so badly to be strong so that I can do what God's called me to do. I want to do what he's called me to do. And I felt like strength is needed to do what he's called me to do, but strength and fragility seem like opposites. And so there was that. But then God reminded me of Paul and how Paul said he would boast all the more gladly of his weakness. And then I began to think if anyone did all that God called them to do outside of Jesus, it was Paul. And Paul wasn't afraid of being labeled fragile. In fact, he labeled himself fragile and boasted in his weakness. And what was the result? The result was incredible strength. Like no lie, I think Paul could have won every episode or every season of Survivor. The Apostle Paul could have taken home like the money every time on a loan. Like any Survivor show, he could have won it. He traveled the ancient world, spreading the gospel of Jesus despite the fiercest persecution. If you read your Being Transformed journal today, you read about how dude got stoned with rocks. He got stoned with rocks, dragged out of the city 
They thought he was dead and then he popped up and went right back into the city. He had this incredible strength. He endured shipwrecks and imprisonments and terrible beatings. He preached to kings and to slaves. He established strong churches, trained up their leaders, all the epistles. Like we look back now in light of all of his accomplishments and we say, look at his strength. He was freakishly, supernaturally strong. He was a strong man, but he was only strong because he knew his weakness and he looked outside of himself for God's grace, for God's grace that is sufficient. If we want lives of such strength, which I do, I wanna make an impact. Well, then I have to understand and I have to admit my weakness and I have to look to God alone for the grace that will strengthen me for any task that he's called me to. So in just a few moments, I want you to see how this works. In just a few moments with, with the Lord, I went from being like repulsed by this word to uncovering why I was repulsed by this word to then boasting in this world word. Lord, I'm fragile became my prayer. That's what I pray when I get up to preach as I'm driving here. God, I am fragile and my body does have limits, but your grace is sufficient for me. And I need you to depend. I need to depend on you for everything. And if I see myself as strong, And if I see myself as able, then I'm not going to depend on you for everything. So I want you to help me, Lord, to banish all thoughts of my own sufficiency because this illusion of strength, this illusion of I'm a strong woman of God actually leaves me in a weaker place. Your power is made perfect in my fragility. Don't cover your brokenness, brokenness. Don't cover over your weakness, over your failure. We're all weak. We're all broken. We all need to depend on God for everything. It's how we were designed. Okay, checkup is over. You guys still with me? How you doing? What symptoms are most prevalent in your life today? I want you to look at the screens. They're all listed out. Don't move past this moment. Really look at them. Yep, take pictures, I love it. Which one of these symptoms, one or two of these symptoms is most relevant in your life today? I think it's important that we, that we identify this as we move forward in this series. If you really wanna get the most out of the series, you need to wrestle with these symptoms and ask the Lord to reveal to you which ones are, uh, are relevant in your life today. We talked earlier about spiritual maturity and how it is seen in the disciple who effortlessly does what Jesus would do in their place. If you wanna be a disciple who effortlessly does what Jesus would do, we can't remain emotionally immature. We can't remain unaware, indifferent to the things that are beneath the surface of our lives. We can't settle for just floating through this world, streaming, scrolling, eating, working. If you're feeling called up today, if you are in this room and you would say that your heart has been pricked and that, and that you would say, yeah, you know, I want this. I desire to be that kind of disciple who does what Jesus would do more often than not. I want that. I wanna be that kind of effortless disciple, the follower of Jesus, but I see and I recognize there's some areas of emotional unhealth in my life. 
that are hindering my spiritual maturity. If that's you, I wanna invite you to do something radical this week. You ready? I wanna invite you to slow down to be with God. There is nothing that has transformed my life, my walk with Jesus, my relationship with Jesus over the last three years than that right there. Slowing down to be with God. What might you need to change to have an unrushed, quiet time every day this week? What might you need to take off of your phone so that Jesus can have your full attention on the drive home from work? What might you need to do to have an unhurried bedtime with your children so that you can help them tend to what lies beneath the surface of their lives and they can grow in their maturity in Christ? You know, James or Peter and John were in that same garden where Mary encountered Jesus, but they missed that garden moment because they hurried off once they saw that Jesus wasn't in the tomb. But Mary didn't hurry off. She lingered a little bit longer. She lingered in the stillness. She lingered in her silence. She lingered in her sadness and Jesus met her there and transformed that sadness into unspeakable joy with one word and then sent her on mission to go and meet others in sadness and tell them the good news that Jesus had overcome. What might you need to do in order to slow down your life, to slow down your life, to move at God's pace instead of hoping that he will catch up to yours? In his book, In Praise of Slowness, author Carl Honore writes about this incident that woke him up to the frantic place of modern life. He was waiting in line at an airport. He's reading this newspaper article about a book entitled One Minute Bedtime Stories. In this book, the author has condensed children's classics like Hans Christian Andersen into 60-second sound bites. And this guy is reading this article, and he talks about his inner tension, this inner turmoil, because there's this part of him that's thinking, yes, finally, a way to get kids down at night um, in a quick and, and, and orderly fashion, a simpler, faster way. But at the same time, he's horrified to realize that he's trying to optimize his time to avoid the frustrations of bedtime rituals. Rather than pursuing deep intimacy and connection with his child, he was tempted to grab at a shortened version of parenting so he could have a shortened version of his son's childhood. How often do we do this with our father? He wants to spend every moment of the day with us and yet we settle for a two to five minute you version story we grab at that, oh look, it's only two to five minutes, I'll watch this. I know it's tempting to grab at a shortened version of spirituality, but if you don't want to remain a one-year-old Christian for the rest of your life, you must slow down to be with God. If you would stand to your feet. I'm gonna invite our prayer team to come down at this moment. And I'm gonna invite you to respond in this moment. This is a moment for response. If you would close your eyes and bow your heads. I know that the Holy Spirit has been ringing you 
calling you. You can feel the vibration in your soul. You might want to send it to voicemail. You might want to put it on silent mode and just say, I'll deal with this later. But I'm encouraging you to pick up, to pick up and to respond. If you've been dealing with shame, should have already mastered everything. I want you to come down in a moment and tell somebody on the prayer team so they can lay hands on you and pray for that to be broken off of your life. If you're dealing with one of the symptoms that we talked about, just like you would come down if you were dealing with a physical symptom that was worrisome, I want you to come down and receive prayer and healing. Maybe today you feel totally cut off from all of your emotions because you've been taught to ignore, to stuff. You feel numb. God wants to restore that part of His image to you today. You just have to step out in obedience and respond. I believe that every person in this room can respond to this word in some way right now in this moment. Don't let it pass you by. Maybe it's leaning over, telling a friend what symptom that you circled. I wanna invite you to worship in this moment. I wanna invite you to pray. I want to invite you to receive prayer. But what will your response be? What will it be? Holy Spirit, as we worship, I pray that you would help every person in the room be aware of your presence and be aware of what you're saying to them so much so that they can't help but respond to your love. I pray that you would draw every person in need of prayer to the altars in Jesus' name. Thanks again for listening. For more information on our church or for more resources to help you grow in your faith, go to newsongpeople.com or download our app by searching for New Song Church OKC in the App Store.